On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Season 1 of Andor. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and in this Star Wars edition of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Paul Zotter as we discuss Season 1 of Andor. All right, Paul. Here we are. Another. Right. It's been a while since we've done. Uh, it's been actually almost a year since we've done uh, recorded a Star Wars episode. The uh, apparently the release dates. <laughs> <laughs> the release dates may be a lot closer than the recording. Um, but uh, so the we were just discussing this before we got on air. The last Star Wars episode that we recorded was the Book of Boba Fett. Um, and yeah. here we are tonight to discuss Andor. Now, you know, anyone paying attention to the Star Wars universe will know that there is something in between those two that we are not covering. And I'm going to say that that is a conscious decision on our part to, you know, not deal explicitly with Obi-Wan Kenobi. At this point, you know, you and I have had several conversations recently about the positive attributes of one of these versus the other and everything else. And so, like I said, I, I'm I, I'm not saying anything explicitly about Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point. What I am saying is I am very, very excited to talk about Andor because I think it is uh, an exceptional piece of television yeah it's very diplomatic of you joe <laughs> and and i i agree i'm very excited to talk about andor and you might say that a lot of the very high quality things that we will discuss about andor are probably the criticisms that we would have against i would have against obi-wan and that's all i'll say okay i'm excited to talk about andor though and i hope that i can offer more than just like, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> I, oh, that episode was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll be curious to see, you know, how we sort of deal with this. A, a good way to start out is we can maybe just read the beginning of the wiki page like we would normally do. And then I've got some, you know, very high level sort of general thoughts. Then, then we can deal with the various topics as they present themselves. Okay. All right, so Andor, also known as Star Wars Andor, is an American science fiction action-adventure limited series created by Tony Gilroy for the streaming service Disney+. Plus. It is the fourth live-action series in the Star Wars franchise, as well as a prequel to both the spin-off film Rogue One and the original Star Wars film. The series follows thief-turned-rebel spy Cassian Andor during the five years that lead to the events of the two aforementioned films. 
a couple of different things. Um, one of the things that I find utterly fascinating about Andor being so good is the fact that Tony Gilroy apparently didn't know shit about Star Wars. He's most known for doing the Bourne trilogy. Oh, actually, it says here, Gilroy was hired by Lucasfilm to provide rewrites and uncredited reshoots for Rogue One. So he came on in Rogue One, which is perfect, because that leads to my next point. And that is one of the things that's always attracted me to Rogue One, and I think we talked about this when we were ranking the Star Wars films, um, because I, I... I don't recall if I had the balls to put Rogue One at the top, but I always like to think of Rogue One as certainly my favorite Star Wars film because it's the only one of of the films, I think, that is an adult film. It really doesn't pull any punches. It, it kind of forces you to consider and feel things in a much more immediate and um, I don't want to say extreme fashion, but certainly much more acutely than the others do, which are not nearly as deep. And that's not to take away from them at all. Um, it's just that as I personally get older, I enjoy certain types of entertainment more and and that is more to my liking mm. and i think Andor the series continues that very well and so you know i'm i'm going to have to when we talked about the mandalorian and the book of boba fett right we gave a lot of credit to the showrunners there and so i'm going to have to give tony gilroy a lot of props here for bringing that sort of general ambiance to this to this show and building you know a story that i find to be exceptionally engaging yeah i i love it and you know i think you know the star wars world you know the whole dirty space thing and and all that that stuff uh it was it was still all glitz and glam, right? From a from the hero's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, poor Luke was stuck on this desert planet, and oh my god, the bad guys is dad, and and like, but it, the darkest that we got in in uh, in the original trilogy, you know, was Luke getting his hand chopped off, Han and Carbonite, and you know, a family crisis emerges about you know how did all this happen, right? How did all this how did this all come to be, and um. And I think the magic of uh, even when the 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 you know seven eight and nine tries to get a little darker, yeah, right. It doesn't work mostly. I think in those because you just don't give a shit enough about any of the characters um, for it to work. And I think the the magic of of um, Rogue One and certainly in Andor is that the characters are. They're they're good characters. And mm -hmm. They are purposeful. There's not there's no really wasted screen time. There's no really wasted interaction. Everything is meaningful, and and the struggle becomes personal, and and that's the sort of the missing piece around you know what what I think is even in, in especially the 
whatever the second the last trilogy was i don't know what we referred that to as but that last trilogy like there was nothing really personal about it right you yeah know, you know um and um and i'm with you as, as a as an older star wars fan as one of the uh original og star wars fans if that's right could use that right it it's fun to get lost in sort of the dark places because we're we can handle that yeah and um and it's it's a much more meaningful story at the end of it. It it is interesting, and and we've talked about this before in other Star Wars episodes. You know, you and I and and Ken and Tom. I mean, this was our childhood. We this came into being when we were the right age to really, you know, fall down that rabbit hole. And you know, it was obviously it, it created. A, you know, a universe that, quite frankly, didn't exist before, with all due respect to Star Trek, um, you know, and, and I'll take a quick aside here, you know, having Disney Plus, and you can say what you want to, but there is the documentary um, Light and Magic on mm. the, you know, the, the origin and development of industrial light and magic. And the one thing that I came away from that, um, that whole documentary, and, and I mean, you know, some people, quite frankly, got ground up by the machine throughout that whole story and, and everything else. But the one thing that really struck me very, very hard is that for all of whatever faults he may have as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker, George Lucas was absolutely visionary mm -hmm. and demanded, you know, the best work of these people to create, you know, this, this capability that, that didn't exist. And he was always pushing the envelope on that. And, you know, so I, I've got to give him, him credit for bringing us in but but really what i was getting at was for people like us who grew up with this with the original trilogy and had sort of you know a, an interesting reaction to the prequel trilogy when those movies came out and then everything that followed after that it's 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 just like when we talk about a band like yes and and your perspective on that whole thing is colored by when you got on the train yeah. so you know people who were seven eight nine ten twelve whatever when the prequel trilogy came out view the star wars universe through a completely different lens um my children who you know at least my my younger ones who were younger when the sequel trilogy came out you know they view that differently than i do and and it's always interesting to to have you know, to to understand that these different perspectives exist. And, you know, again, I'm saying that because I want to I want to say that I certainly respect other perspectives on this. I'm just coming at it from my particular perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing too. I mean, so Kathleen's nephew, who is a you know early twenties, he goes to to school and he's got studying film. Um, you know, I had a very interesting conversation with him over Thanksgiving where he basically, you know, you know, told me like, 
you know, he he can respect the original trilogy, but you know, basically his he thinks the end all of the Star Wars movies are is actually Episode Eight. Really, um, the, and <clears throat> and I was completely fascinated by that. I was like, and it was like one of those things where you're talking to someone and it just changes everything, and you're like, okay, well now I want to know what you think about like every movie I've ever seen. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it it's it's true. Yeah, the the perspective that we all carry into this franchise is um is varied, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people I think you know who are in our in our shoes who have had our similar experiences who hold rogue one in extremely high regard uh compared to all of the uh all of the other movies one of the things uh well before i get into that let me let me roll back quickly to something you had had said in the very beginning here and that was about you know the strength of the characters that we have and that there are no um wasted characters throughout this first series and one of the one of the things that has repeatedly struck me, I think I've watched the series through two or three times at this point. One of the things that I'm I'm always kind of amused with when watching this is the way that you end up sort of um, I don't want to say identifying with, and I don't want necessarily even to say rooting for, but certainly there's a connection with with Dedra and her commanding officer in the ISB. So these are the bad guys, right? They're yeah. they're the they're the bad guys, but at the same time you you're I'm left admiring them and loving the performances that these actors are giving um as these these characters and you don't necessarily want them to win, but it's I just I find it fascinating they're able to get us to essentially root for some of the bad guys throughout all of this. Yeah, and and Dedra's a perfect example because like, you know, she's kind of bullied at the beginning and she's gotta fight for herself and she's gotta she's gonna kinda fight for, you know, what she's trying to accomplish and 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 like you you, you feel bad for her. And you're and you know she's right. And you're like, Oh, she's onto something here, like, you know, she can do it. And it is it is hysterical that that you 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 know because I don't even really consciously think of it that yeah I'm rooting for her I want her to and then and then you know as time goes on you're like oh damn <laughs> he's a bitch like <laughs> what the hell <laughs> she is a total bitch and and similar and similar to um uh Cyril right the the mm -hmm. deputy inspector at the beginning right like yeah that dude gets you know he is way too ambitious he like bites off way more than he can chew but you feel but he's the only one who like is on to it right he's he, the only one who knows what's going on he's the only guy and who can you, do his job <laughs> yeah and and you and you feel bad for him because he's getting the shaft he's getting the shaft from the corporate arm of the empire and and uh you know one way or another we can all kind of relate to that and and that's cool yeah it, it it really is quite amazing that scene where and there are a couple scenes actually involving Cyril in the in the early part. You know the the first is where his boss basically explains why this is more hassle than it's worth, and not to worry about it. You know, don't do a thing, just let it go. And then in the end, when the guy from the ISB comes in and basically tells him to 
you know, sign the report I've written and don't worry about it. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're going home now. Um, and, and yeah, you, you do, you feel for him, which, and all of this leads to another, another aspect of this. And it's, it's tied up with the characters. Um, but it's the, uh, just generally exceptional storytelling and the way they're able to sort of world build these different locations. By the time you're, it's all said and done, I mean, you have such a strong sense of what Ferrix is. Even in the short time that you're there, you get sort of this interesting feel for, you know, what Aldani is experiencing you know, all of the the intrigue on Coruscant and by extension with Mon Mothma and her extended family, you understand more about Shandrilla. Uh, it, it, they, they're just so adept at efficiently communicating, uh, you know, what motivates these different characters and, and what sorts of things that they're dealing with. And, and I think that also helps you buy in to into what these people are doing. But, uh, you know, for me, the the way they build out Ferrix is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. Between the the people being made into bricks and the guy with the with the anvil, uh, it's yeah, just yeah. it's so good. Yeah. And the marching bands, oh my god, are you kidding me? That's the coolest thing. And I heard I think I saw in one of the specials that you know, the bands were actually literally playing that music like on the set while they were they were doing it. It was um, which is really I mean, what an experience for for the actors. Yeah, it's um, and, and even the whole. You know, you take it to the prison planet, which I can't think of the name of of what that was called. Narkina five. There it is. Narkina five. Like just that. How quickly. Like after all of that world building that they did, how quickly they were able to put you in this captive environment of like death, doom, and fear, mm -hmm. and 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 bring that home in such a fast way. And for me, that was that was a, a complete right turn in the series. I was like totally not expecting all of that to take place. And and one of the weird things is like, if I if I'm thinking of this correctly, like, you know, Cassian Andor is not a passive character, right? Right. He he is taking charge of everything. Everything happens because he does something. Like it's not things happening to him. And in the in the midst of all of this, something happens to him, right? Like he's he just gets picked up and gets arrested. And it, it it's a it's a it's a fantastic twist, but again, it's just that the environment that they're able to create in such a small period of time, I think, is is pretty incredible. Yeah, and and there's definitely a lot to talk about with um with Narkina Five. So I'm curious to ask you a question, Paul, at this point, because I, I remember I remember when Andor was you know, set to come out and I was excited for it. You know, I love Rogue One. Um, you know, I was kind of invested in this character. I'm thinking this is going to be great. And then they released the first three episodes together. 
And I want to say I wasn't able to watch right away. So it was a few days before I was able to sit down and and actually watch. And I did manage to um, to watch the three of them. I don't know if I watched them all the way through, but I watched them over the course of like two days, if I remember correctly. How did you first, were you able to watch those first three together? And, and what was your experience doing that? Yeah, so not exactly, but so I don't know how, whether it was some, you know, one of the many YouTube um, videos that I watch in part just to make sure that there are people who are bigger geeks than I am. <laughs> um, but I had somehow gotten tipped off that that these episodes were packaged right in, you know, like there there was almost like three different movies or four different movies, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I, I remember going in being under the impression that the first three episodes were meant to be watched all all together. Mm-hmm. So I tried on a 5 a.m. flight uh, to Dallas uh, and then Albuquerque. I tried to watch all three episodes. And I and I think that the early time and the surprisingly I'll just say the surprising start to all of it. I was falling asleep through the second episode and I and I, I ended up not watching it. But on my return flight, I rewatched the one episode on the way to Dallas, the first episode, and then watched the second and third episode. And I distinctly remember like after the first episode being like, huh. <laughs> and then the second episode is like I was like, I'm not really sure what is um going on here. But I'm kind of interested. And by the end of the third episode, I was like, holy shit, this is epic. <laughs> and, um, and the following week, I actually, so I, I, um, I had Mike Fuda over, as well as um, Jim Miller, uh, who was the keyboard player in Special Delivery and also band member of Region. The three of us, they had not seen any of the episodes. So we watched, you know, we had some sandwiches and we watched the first two. And Jim, Jim Miller just said he was sitting on my couch and he was like, listen, he's like, I don't know how to tell you this. He's like, but I don't think I can leave until I watch the third episode. <laughs> and, and so, um, and so the, the definitely watching the first three episodes. And I told many, many people this after that experience that, that 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 was key that that was key to the experience how did how did you find those three yeah i i had almost the exact same experience that you did i knew that they like i i was not as aware of you that they were sort of packaged like that i remember thinking it was odd that disney would release three at once hmm. but much like you i sat down and started watching and in like the first one you're kind of like oh, what going on and the second one you're like i maybe see what's going on and like you said by the time the third one's done you're you're sold you're in you're good but if like if they had released those one week at a time they would have never kept anybody around everyone had been like what the fuck is this they yeah (laughs) they would have been lit up for sure yeah and and it would have been like rings of power where like amazon had to turn off the comments (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um uh, uh on the on the thing 
I'm I'm curious. Uh, I watched Rings of Power late. What was that all about? Apparently, when Rings of Power first started, you know, on Amazon, you go on Amazon and you search Rings of Power and you can like watch it. And there's all the reviews that people put on there. Just like they would for products, right? Got it. And apparently, it was slammed pretty pretty significantly by the Tolkien fan fan base. Really? And um <laughs> so much so much so that they had to uh turn off the comments. I have uh, not and, heard and the this. reviews on that. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Um Yeah. But you know, but that's another episode I'm sure. Yeah, but but I absolutely. think you know, had they maybe had a similar strategy, they may have saved themselves a little bit there. Kudos to the team running this show to recognize that and getting Disney to agree, you know, look, if we can Put it out like this. We'll get people for the rest. And I think, you know, if if you were willing to invest those first, you know, almost three hours, whatever it was, you know, you were well situated uh, to move forward. And and it, it does make a lot more sense on a rewatch. Um, you can pick up much more of it. But when you're just getting dropped into that world and sort of getting your bearings, and, and they do have, you know, there's a lot that they're trying to sort of squeeze in in the front between you know his his origin story as a as a kid and and you know what's going on with ferrix and and the sister and you know introducing the isb there's there's a lot going on you know and and the rebellion sort of circling all around this and it's just i'm i'm glad to hear that my experience sort of tracked with yours and again it's it's another testament to the showrunners yeah yeah plus you're like what like why are we why are we dealing with a bar fight like you know the whole <laughs> the whole thing starts to unwind around this like interaction that a you know you know the house of ill repute and whatnot but yes yeah kudos to them for for having that foresight it was pretty pretty impressive so we talked about the the story arcs and, and I don't know officially how they're they're spread out I split them up this way episodes one to three is uh you know basically cassian on the run so we get introduced to cassian he gets himself into trouble and he's gotta he's got to get himself out episodes four to seven and i it probably could be four to six is aldani um that's all around you know the heist and at this point the isb is trying to you know you know, figure out what kind of problems they have and what they don't have. Uh, like I said, I I included seven in that arc because it kind of ties up some loose ends. Seven, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, almost stands by itself. Episodes eight to ten are Narkina five, and then um, episodes eleven and twelve are what I'd call turning the corner, where basically mm. all the storylines kind of come together. And Cassian is essentially committed at this point to the rebellion. That's that's the way I kind of view these. I like that. I, I would not disagree with any of that. So when we, I think we already talked a little bit about, you know, episodes one to three. And, and basically you get introduced to a lot of the major characters. So you get Cassian, you get Cyril, Bix, uh, you get Marva, you get Luthen. Mon Mothma, and you get Dedra. You know, you you basically get 
all the important parts. And yeah. we, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, Cyril is sort of like the, the, the bad guy, the big bad guy in that first sort of arc. He's the one who's trying to track down Cassian after the, after he, you know, murders these two essentially yeah. thugs. And, um, but of course the ISB also, you know, gets called in, um, for a slightly different reason. And so, you know, everyone sort of converges on Ferrix at that point. Let's talk a little bit about, about Stellan Skarsgård as Luthan. Ah, yes. Uh, what a fantastic character. What a fantastic casting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this guy, he brings all, all the gravitas. And it's interesting the way that they introduce you to Luthen as himself initially, you know, and, and all of the, the sort of coolness that he, that he brings to the yeah. situation. And it's afterwards that you are introduced to his assumed persona for Coruscant as this sort of foppish, eccentric, antique yes. dealer. And I think if you had been introduced to those two characters in the opposite direction, I don't think it would have hit quite as hard to me. I agree. Um, I agree. I think it's just, it's fascinating the way that that happens. And, you know, as we, as you mentioned, right, initially you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the big deal about a bar fight, but it's really all, it's just a vehicle to A, introduce you to all these people, B, get Cassian on the run to where he's willing to do anything. Right, right. And um, obviously through all of this, Cyril gets screwed and has to go live with his mother. And Dedra is alerted to the presence of, um, you know, an unknown agent she calls Axis. Dun, dun, mm. dun. Yeah, you know, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, he, there, he's been in so many things. But the thing that I, I, I remember him being in the two performances that stand out is when he was in The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and Goodwill Hunting, of all things. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he's just fan. And, you know, I don't, and I don't think he's ever changed his accent for any role he's been in, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> and and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of the storytelling that I think is, is so superior to what we've seen in the the rest of the Star Wars series is that, like you said, they they use this like plot development, like the bar fight, you know, to set things into motion, and then this whole thing that's going on with Cassian, and it's it, it's all a vehicle to start explaining everyone's backstories for you to start uh, for all of the characters to be revealed to you. And it, it's it's just so well done, and and that's why it's like so satisfying at the end of episode three when it kind of climaxes there. It's like everything is now, mm -hmm. you know, you have something to work with, and now you have, uh, you know, you're you're curious about what's going to happen next, and and how all these pieces fit together, and and you know, like you know, like I I, I was a young whippersnapper. Right, I just took for granted. Okay, there's these bad guys, the Empire. They're just dicks, <laughs> and the good guys are just trying to blow up their shit so they can. And 
and it's it's all this political intrigue and you know people like you know saying one thing and you know you know in in public life and then turning around and doing something completely different and being part of you know this secret rebellion that's that is it's almost like it hasn't even happened yet it's just being built it's really cool it's 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 really engaging as a as a viewer and as someone who you know like us who love star wars it just sucks us in 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 such a real way compared to the way the um the other shows just sort of pander to us time at times yeah i think i think that's a definitely good call out um with regards to you know how they're able to present and again i think this goes to the the difference in tone right it's not it's not a black and white they're a lot of different shades of gray in here and we're going to get to this certainly later on i think in the penultimate episode when luthan gives his manifesto speech which freaking knocks me off my ass but we'll get there uh, but what you what you see is the stakes for these people who are presenting one face in public while trying to do these things you know, out of the public eye. And that adds a huge amount of, of tension to the story, which is mm. wonderful to me. Another interesting thing that I find about both Rogue One and this, one of the, one of the cornerstones of the Star Wars universe, and a lot of it has to do, you know, I, I, if I'm being cynical, I would say a lot of it has to do with marketing, um, certainly on the sequel trilogy, but that obviously is the, the droid factor. And K2SO in Rogue One is by far my favorite Star Wars droid ever. I think he is just phenomenal as a character. I was sad we didn't get to see him here, but what we do get is is B2, and I want to say B2's got other letters, B2 EMO. You know, by all accounts, B2 is not nearly as slick as your normal astromech droid. He's certainly no, you know, fancy BB unit or anything else. He has a very unique design, but in my opinion, B2 is the most expressive droid we have ever seen in this universe. And it is stunning to me how they're able to pull at my heartstrings with this machine. Yeah. But yet they do it. Yeah, it's such, it's such a great point. All the other droids however much you like them they're very mechanical they're very unemotional and then they'll sort of tip their you know some sort of feelings that they may be experiencing at some point in time right c3po and um and and like you know bb8 if you if you want to go into the but but b2 is like emotion forward yeah like like he's the most feeling droid that 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 we've seen and it's crazy. It's funny that he, I just have accepted it all this time. Yeah, he's like a pet more than a droid. <laughs> but but you're right. I mean, because that's how believable it is, and that's that's how well they pull it off. Like you said, I mean, it's 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 
it's amazing to think that that it never even occurred to me that 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 should be silly or should not work. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 I I find it remarkable. And and the more I watch it, the more I respond to that, that that thing. I just like and, and, and we'll get to there in the last bit. Right. But. Yeah, well, we'll we'll hold off on that because <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, uh, and I, at this point, I think we just maybe move through the the few arcs and and hit the highlights and and sure. you know kind of give our opinions. So if we move, sure. I, I, I yeah. do want to say one thing. I I don't know if I've been able to find him uh, on the on the wikis as far as, um, but the the guy who I've I've sort of referred to. You know, somehow, in all of the casting, they decided to to cast Fat Bastard as one of the uh, from the Austin Powers uh, trilogy into the show. And I don't know what his name is, but he's the he's like the deputy. He's like Cyril's deputy. Oh, you and, are. And, this. But it's such an interesting choice to have this very. I, 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 it's really more like Scottish, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to have this very Scottish person in in this in this particular role, and and it's funny because I you know I, I I make fun. It's like fat bastard. That's what that's what it rem- he kind of reminds me of him because he's you know a little bit on the port side. I, and I I think that's Sergeant Linus Mosk. That that might make sense. Yeah. And the and, the actor's name is Alex Ferns. So yeah, it just it's kind of funny to me that um, you know maybe I'm being maybe I'm being a dick, but <clears throat> it's just an interesting choice to me. That's all. It's like a I don't know if it's a if it's a t- tip of the hat to um, Austin Powers or a tip of the hat to Scotty. Uh, from uh, Star Trek, yeah, but it's 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 a very odd thing to me in the middle of all of this that we have have <laughs> this heavily Scottish gentleman. <laughs> it that scene when they're going to Ferrix and the sergeant is is you know prepping the troops and he's like yeah. and and he turns it over to Cyril and Cyril's got nothing to say. <laughs> And it's so awkward, right? Just like, yeah. oh, Cyril, dude, you just don't, you don't have it. But yet there was enough there that, you know, these two formed whatever bond. And later on, when when Linus calls him on the phone. Yes. And yeah. they can't hear each, like, he can't hear what, what Cyril is saying. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that scene just cracks me up. And then when they land on Ferrix the second time, and they're on that little taxi or that bus, and they swap yeah. their hats. It's just, you know, the the <laughs> way that they they pair, you know, they sort of make that odd couple, you know, and they're they're physically mismatched in the ways that you described, yeah. but it it works and it provides a certain amount of levity without being too much. It's it's such a delicate hand the way they they deal with it. Yeah, and maybe and maybe that's exactly what it is. It just breaks up some of the intensity a little bit um so maybe it ends up being a stroke of genius but the the character interplay between those two it is quite interesting yeah for sure and i want to say it's in the the first part where dedra like you said is in the halls of the isb is being you know 
abused and dealing with the patriarchy and everything else. And again, she's just, she's trying to do her job and she's clearly better at her job than the rest of the people in the room. Yeah. With the exception of the boss guy. Yeah. And, and slowly she starts to sort of get on top of the situation, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. So the second arc then takes us to Aldani and this is, this is the big heist, right? This is what, this is what Luthen wanted and or for. He needed someone who was perhaps a bit more professional in, ter in terms of, of running a, an operation like this. And I mean, my interpretation is that, you know, Luthen has, you know, the team on Aldani already. They've been there for, I think, several months. But I guess Luthen just doesn't have confidence that they're going to get this done. And so he wanted, presumably Cassian specifically. And I, it's interesting. At the time, I thought it was a little bit odd why it was such a big deal that Cassian was a straight-up mercenary. But, you know, when, when you're introduced, this is like your first introduction to what I'll call frontline rebellion-type folks. And as you might expect, you know, these are emotionally committed people they're they're in this for the cause they're not in it for anything else and so you can understand how perhaps you know someone um you know being there for monetary reasons wouldn't sit very well with them but at the same time it becomes very apparent very early on that they don't have what it takes Right, and and that they they do need someone like Cassian, and and it's interesting because you made the point, you know, throughout all the stories that we see, Cassian is is a doer. He's a leader. He's causing things to occur, um, and and this is the first time where we see Cassian being put into sort of a secondary role that eventually just through his natural abilities he ends up at the front of the line as opposed to you know back in it you know i like i love vel's character in this because she's like trying to hold the whole rebel group together and you know she is the leader and the only reason you think she would agree to having cassian is because she knows that the team really isn't up up for the up for the challenge right and they need him um and um and i just find it fascinating that you know like you said everyone's so emotionally involved and yet yeah. later you find that she is actually you know one of the wealthy mm -hmm. uh Coruscantians, um and you know connected to mon Moth mothman and all of that it's really um it, it's it's really quite quite interesting um I don't know from from you know I I haven't watched it as as many times as you. Um, th this part to me is is really amazing because I think this middle section. The cool thing for me about this whole section in Aldani is that it 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 you know a vehicle for all of the all of the characters to be built around right. Mm -hmm. Um, like we learn so much about Mon Mothma, what she's doing. And and her backstory, which is kind of cool on its own, right? We see her in Rogue One. We see her obviously in the in the original trilogy. To see her backstory growing here is pretty incredible. Um, not the least of which is 
how much she's willing to give up in order to um, to see this through. But the connection that that she has with Vel, I think you know, it comes comes forward later. Um, but to me, it's just it's just a, a terrific vehicle to understand what is going on behind the scenes, and truly, the, the sort of the diabolical nature of the rebellion, right? So you have these very wealthy, very very you know, uh, you know, affluent people within the galaxy, literally pulling strings with a with a ragtag group of people on a, on this planet trying to pull off this big heist and really at the end of the day they're all just pawns yeah in the in the mechanisms and, and the machine um that mon Moth, mothma and um, luthan are are putting together and, and it's interesting how they illustrate throughout this part of the story that difference Luthen knows exactly what he's doing or what they're doing with regards to moving these pawns on the board, whereas someone like Mon Mothma maybe doesn't fully realize that. And I think Val, even to a certain degree, even though she's there on Aldani, some of her her reactions when she's on Coruscant suggest that she still doesn't get the whole gist of this. And yeah. You know, but Luthen knows exactly what he what this requires. He he um, he articulates that exceptionally clearly at the end. Um, you can see it, it in his dealings with Saul Guerrera. You know the 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 fact that he's managing all these different assets, if that's the right word. Yeah. You know, in the field, in Coruscant, in within the empire itself. I mean, this guy's got his plate full. He's taking care of all this stuff. And it, it's interesting, you know, the, the way that all comes together and, and you don't hear it in the beginning um, or at this point, you don't get it till the end, but that one guy who is writing the, the, the manifesto, right? Yeah. You know, he is, he's expressing these, these heartfelt, ideals and he's he's thought about this to the point that it's worth writing down for him mm. it reminds me of you know us when we were 18 19 20 you know when we had all these high ideals about you know what music should mean and, and everything else um obviously not quite the same stakes but it, it's interesting to me yeah and you know it's I think this section drags on maybe a little longer than I would like it, but you do get an interesting insight, I think, to, you know, not only the front line of the rebellion and how this was being put together, but also how the empire at the at the local level is manipulating population to get what they want. Yeah, you know, and and, and yeah. so it, it it does give you a lot of depth to the tapestry, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and I love that kind of stuff because, you know, they're they're appeasing the the local inhabitants of Aldani because they want what they want, and 
you know, it, it's not, it, we can all relate with that kind of stuff, right? We can all relate with a manifest destiny or, uh, is that what, no, it wasn't what it was called. What the hell was it called? Was that what it was called? Yeah. Where, we, where, where the U.S. was going to yeah. settle yeah, everything yeah. between coast the East and West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Like, we can all kind of relate with that. And the, and the, and the, um, you know, the things that happen, uh, in those kinds of things. And, and I think one of the, the, the things that, that I think is captured on, on that grand level. And yet on a very personal level, when you think about Vel and Luthen and, and Cassian, they, you know, and Cassian, I think, goes through a bit of a transformation. It's a transformation that continues, right? That, you know, he is being transformed for someone who is looking for personal gain to be fully committed to something bigger than him, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when you look at Luthen and, and Vel and Mon Mothma, Mothma, what they're doing, the good guys, if you will, they're all sort of preoccupied with this outward expression of being a part of something that's right something that's bigger than an individual and then when you look at all of the players within the isb and within the empire they are all concerned with the inward you know domination right um dedra is is she's not she's she's saying all the right things but she's not really ambitious because you know she believes that the empire is the way She's trying to garner personal power for herself. Right? Yeah. And, um, and Cyril, similarly, like he's a little bit more ideal, but he's looking for personal recognition and personal, personal gain. And, and I think that that is sort of an undercurrent to all of this that just, it's just a nice, to me, it's a nice touch just underscoring the difference between, you know, the good guys and the bad guys in this, uh, in this universe. I love that. I think that's great. Let's, uh, probably this is a a good time. I don't know when would be the most appropriate time, but this is probably a good time to give uh, a little bit of a shout out to On Coruscant, the costuming for Mon Mothma and her family. Uh, Did you ever finish the Clone Wars, Paul? I never did. Oh, yeah. Um, Or maybe it's Rebels. I don't know. Um, Mon Mothma has appeared in animated form. I'm pretty sure she's in the Clone Wars. And, you know, the way that they're able to sort of bring that aesthetic to live action is stunning. And I'm always, and I'm, I'm sure, I mean, we're supposed to be, right? I'm always stunned by the costuming for Mon Mothma and her husband and, you know, anyone in her house. Um, anyone in that sort of society, it's it's absolutely stunning. And I do love when her character is explaining to the the one guy, look, I'm a you know, I'm a nuisance in the Senate, so that people think I'm a nuisance and they're not really paying attention to what I am doing. Um, you know, that the way that they're able to provide again those that depth of purpose for all these characters is mm-hmm. really, really nice. And they do it in a way that doesn't feel like straight up exposition. Like this is a risk for her as a, as a character to reveal this level of detail, mm-hmm. you know? So love it. Love it. Yeah. So, and, and obviously, you know, in the final analysis, 
the heist is essentially successful. You know, I think Luthen in the store is very, very funny. As he's waiting for that, he's very nervous. And his assistant, Clea, basically tells him, look, just chill out and go home. It's either going to happen or it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's essentially successful, but it doesn't go exactly according to plan. There you know, a lot of collateral damage, if you will. And mm-hmm. poor Nemec gets squashed by all the money. Yeah. And the other... Um, the other guy who was with them turns out to just be a real big scumbag. And right. so at the end of it, right, it's it's Vel sitting there holding the entire <laughs> the entire heist minus the cut that Aunt, uh, Cassian took. Right. Um, but it, it was essentially successful and and you know it starts, you know, this 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 chain of events and ultimately it leads to you know this leads to sort of a a reckoning between luthan and mon mothma you know she's like Mm -hmm. you did this he's like damn straight i did this this is what it's going to have to take and cassian goes back to ferrix even though people are you know still interested in him and marva ultimately says i'm not going to go and so cassian says fine I'm going to go to a beach resort, you know, find yep. find an appropriate companion, and I'm just going to, you know, fuck off for a little bit. Now, of course, that doesn't really work out so well for him. Doesn't pan out as you like. Now, it was interesting, right? Because those, those Imperial droids, the K2SO types, show up, and it's like, ooh! But clearly, right. that was not K2SO. And right. um, our, so Cassian finds himself shipped off to prison in Narkina 5 for our next arc. And so here again, as we start on, on Cassian's next adventure, we are introduced to Kino Loy, who mm-hmm. is the floor boss of, uh, I guess it's level 2 or level 5, room 2. And Andy Circus, obviously, you know, the the capture motion king, he was what? He mm-hmm. was Gollum. Mm-hmm. He was uh, Supreme Leader Snoke. He's done a bunch of, he was, um, oh, what was the, the ape's name in Planet of the Apes? He did that. Um, I know him. The first, the first, um, appearance i remember him in a movie as a human being was he played tesla's assistant in the prestige yes that's true which fantastic um, very fantastic but but andy circus brings such gravitas to this role um and so here again Cassian's sort of pecking order is reset. He's now new prisoner on the line. And Kino Loy obviously is in full control of what's going on. And throughout this three episode arc, that switches. And it's it's most dramatic to me because it's it's one scene in particular where that switch occurs. And it's after they speak to the doctor and the two of them are in the room by themselves 
arguing about what needs to happen. And I, I remember it, it's, I can see it in my head. Kino's, he doesn't want to go there and he yells at, at Cassie and then they need to get on program. And Cassian's like, no, we're going to talk about this. This is, this is happening. This is going down. And yeah. at the end of the scene, Cassian is the one standing up and telling Kino to get on program. And it, it's, it's like, oh, I remember the first time I saw that, and I was just like, yeah. damn. I mean, but at the – and I think one of the things that's so fascinating about Cassie and Andor as a, as a character is even when he does that and he assumes that leadership, he's able to do that in a way that in no way diminishes Kino Loy, not at all. And and we were talking about this before we got on air, right? You know, yeah. It, when you when you're you reach a certain point in your career and you're dealing with leadership and coaching and development and things like that, right? You have to be able to lead without diminishing others. Right. And and, right. and so I I particularly resonate with with that aspect of this story. So one of the things that really kind of gets me about about this is like all right andor gets gets in there right he gets arrested there everything that i know about the empire that that i should know about the empire zero i'm in my mind there's absolutely zero chance that andor is ever going to leave this prison unless he escapes mm -hmm. right like the empire is not interested in having you carry out your sentence and then letting you out and the thing that I love about Andy Serkis's character is that he believes, like he's counting the days, yeah. right? At the beginning, like he thinks he's getting out. If he does exactly what he's supposed to do and he follows all the rules, that that he's gonna he's gonna get out. And I just love, like you said, it's in that in that moment of you know when they're talking to the doctors and walking back that. That he realizes, and I can't remember what the last line of that episode is. It was like he said something like, you know, you know, we need plan B or something like that, or we need the plan, or I, I can't remember what he said. But the, uh, it was like the last, the last um, lines were like, oh, okay, this is it. The, the switch has flipped. Yeah. And, and it's going to happen. It, and again, it's like it, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning it's the character, right? Like that character is portrayed so convincingly, right? The, his belief at the beginning when he meets Andor, Andor first, and then, and then the the transformation that happens because of of what goes on, and and the switch in his mind, um, that okay something has to be done. Like that's that's crazy. Yeah, it it really is. It's amazing. Now, the one thing that I never saw coming. I figured it out like a couple of seconds before it actually happened. But at the end of that sequence, when they're breaking out of prison, one way out, everyone's going up and they get to that, you know, that sort of door to the outside, if you will, and everyone's jumping into the ocean. I knew, like I said, just a couple of seconds before, and then the camera cuts to Kino and you, you see that look of, terror on his face yeah yeah and he's like i can't swim and you're just like 
oh yeah you know yeah, and heart yeah heartbreaking you know and and oh you God. needed to you needed to obviously in some ways cut the character of Kino loose right because this is andor it's not the Kino show right, right um but that was that was painful and and again you know when you talk about and and that sort of is is becomes one of the themes of this show right what what are people willing to sacrifice and what do they need to sacrifice in you know for the greater good mm-hmm. and yeah. and so we get this little microcosm of the rebellion if you will in Kino Loy and yeah. I, I I found that to be exceptionally powerful yeah it it was and and I I <laughs> I hate to take us on an aside, and maybe this is an outtake, but they had to jump pretty, pretty high, yeah, pretty far into that water, and at risk of being too realistic, right? When I think about humans jumping that far into water, I think about the pain <laughs> associated with the entry into said water, and. And my mind immediately goes to like, if I'm in that situation and I'm jumping off, how am I going to enter the water? I figure that I want to be entered as, I want to be as straight as possible and just kind of slice through the water. And I've noticed whenever I'm, you know, at an amusement park and I see a high divers, they always seem to be like cupping their balls somehow (laughs) as you go through. But but I can't figure out like you know are you like are you like grabbing hold of them and like you know jamming them up as high as you can because there's got to be some impact there's got to be on your on your hands going into your balls at the same time like how does that <laughs> like how do you execute a dive of that significance and not just be laying in the water for like a half an hour because your balls feel like they just got slapped against the pavement. And and I don't think any of these prisoners were trained in diving techniques. <laughs> I doubt so, it. So, you know, um, I'm sure there was a lot of trial uh, and error going on there. Yeah. The, the one thing about this section that, and, and it's sort of this middle, you know, the, the two middle arcs that, the one thing about this entire series that I just have a problem with, and that is this idea of why Luthen decides he needs to have Cassian Andor dead. I, I understand, you know, Cassian saw his face, but it's not like he's running around Coruscant looking like himself, right? He he spends most of his time undercover. I just, I have a, a small problem with that aspect of the story. I understand they need that so that Luthen and all of his agents are on Ferrix at the end. You know, it, it's, again, it's a mechanism to make sure all the characters are in the places you need them to be when they need to be there but i just i i that's one thing that i have sort of struggled with every time i've watched this it's not a big thing um and it doesn't 
it doesn't keep me up at night, but it does kind of disturb me a little bit. Yeah, it's. I think it's tough because I think from Luthen's perspective, like he's not necessarily sold on the fact that Cassian is, you know, a a you know card carrying member of the rebellion, right? And you know, he's taken money from Luthen to do these things, and could, and and now he's been imprisoned in, you know, an imperial prison, and who knows what could happen. Um. So it seems ultra paranoid. However, it is a very, uh, you know, like one of the cool things about Cassian is he is like he really doesn't think twice about like he I don't I guess he doesn't mean to kill the first guy. Right. And in, in the very first episode. Right. Right. He's just trying to, like, you know, get get yeah. them off his back. But once he does kill that guy and realizes that, you know, the second guy can now ruin him, right? Even though that guy is begging for his life, you know, Cassian doesn't even think twice and shoots him, right? And 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 kills him gang style right there. He also does that at the very beginning of Rogue One when he's in the alley and he's with the, you know, his accomplice who's freaking out, right? And yeah. can't keep, hold it together and isn't going to be able to survive like whatever's happening and he shoots him dead right there. And I think this is kind of a tie-in to that mentality of, of you know, if you're not with the program, you're a risk, which is very gangster, you know, which you don't really want to associate that with the Rebel Alliance, but you know, it it it, it has that element to it, which is pretty interesting. And that takes us then to the events on Ferrix for the last two episodes. Wow. Uh, I don't remember if it was in episode 10 or 11, but we find out certainly by 11 that one of the ISB guys is working for Luthen. He's, uh, he's got a family now and he wants out and he has the poor judgment to ask Luthen what he sacrifices for the rebellion, hmm. which you know, just leads to one of the most compelling monologues that I've heard on television in quite some time. Um, as Luthen explains, you know, in very direct terms that essentially he, Luthen, has given and continues to give everything to this rebellion. Um, it's interesting Luthen as a character is so interesting and so strong and plays such a central role in the rebellion. It's interesting that we've never heard of him before, but you know, it makes sense that the the show would want to create something that was sort of their own that they could pivot around. But given the fact that he's so influential and he shows up in nowhere else in the timeline. I was 100% convinced that Luthen was not going to survive season one. Huh. Um, but the fact that he did was, you know, very, very exciting to me because I think he's, he's very interesting, but again, he can't, he clearly isn't around, 
by the events of Rogue One. So, right, right. <laughs> you know, um, we'll have to see where that goes. So that was, you know, kind of a little bit about that. But, but again, as we mentioned by the the last episode, everybody is back on Ferrix. And again, this is where we get to understand a little bit more about the culture. Marva has passed away. Marva has, you know, been turned into a brick, which is just fascinating, right? Yeah. When, when you when you are watching those first three episodes in that sort of haze that we talked about, and you're on Ferrix, and everything is brick, and you don't generally see bricks in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> it, it really kind of, you're like, what's with all the bricks? This is really weird. And then to find out that, the bricks are the people. It's yeah, like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. And, and it's uh, such a cool thing. And it's it's like so unexpected and it's such a cool thing. Yeah. Well, there was thing I don't I don't want to backtrack and maybe you were gonna get to this, but uh Luthan goes and visits Saul Guerrera. <laughs> I love Saul and, Guerrera. And uh yeah, and and you know, and Saul's like, Yeah, I'll help out with that attack now. But Luthen's basically like, yeah, I don't think you want to do that. And um, they have a big, uh, but but what's more important than that is that upon Luthen's departure and return to Coruscant, he encounters an Imperial patrol, which he avoids being sucked in by a tractor beam and takes out three TIE fighters in a pretty badass epic fashion and then launches to light speed which is which was pretty badass i gotta say that unexpected that whole sequence yeah it was unexpected and you're thinking you know how's he going to get out of this and that was not at all what i was anticipating <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally totally fascinating we didn't talk about dedra's terrifying torturer oh. i mean that guy is terrible yeah. So, you know, yeah. uh, and, and it, so it's interesting, right? We talked on the Aldani arc about how we got sort of a close look at how the empire sort of manipulates local populations. Mm -hmm. We get an even better view of that here. You know, they want to have this, this funeral um, parade for Marva and, you know, they're, the empire is trying to, you know, control that in terms of timing, size, location. Um, Dedra steps in and she's like, no, we want this, that, and the other thing. She changes that a little bit. Ultimately, the impression that I get is that the the people of Ferrix say, screw you, and they, they start it early when yeah. no one is quite expecting it, which is very, very cool. We talked um, about, you know, the, the two bands coming together from different streets and meeting in that, that uh, I guess it's Rick's Way or Rick's Road, yeah. um, you know, and, and the two different, the, the two different bands have slightly different colored uniforms and they sort of merge together um, as Brasso is walking down the street with, with Marva's brick. And then, you know, Marva shows up via hologram and starts just giving it to the Empire. And that one yeah. little shit dude, when he comes in and kicks over B2, I was viscerally mad. <laughs> 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 a 
And I was never so happy as when I saw the one dude like dragging B2 away from all the, the melee that was going on. Um, and, and then to see Brasso just like clocking Imperials in the head with Marva's brick. There was just something so delightful <laughs> about that. You know, it was it was sort of a a very exciting event sort of to finish on, especially on the backdrop of Nemec's manifesto being read. Mm. You know, because that was just prior to this. Um, and, and Nemec is describing how you know, the, the imperial need for order is unnatural and it has to be constantly sort of maintained. And, you know, all these, all these acts are, you know, acts of rebellion and each one of them weakens the empire. And one of them is going to like, you know, blow the lid off the thing. It, it, it was fascinating to sort of see that um, come through. And then of course you get sort of the, the big, I'm not going to call it a confrontation, but the meeting between Luthen and Cassian, because we, obviously we know Cassian is part of the rebellion. He's a, he's an integral part of the rebellion as described in Rogue One. So, you know, and, and he basically, you know, his experiences in these other arcs, you know, lead him to the point where he tells Luthen, look, either kill me or take me in, but you know, we're not doing this anymore. And I just thought it was, it was such a, a sort of perfect note to end on with the exception, obviously of the, of the, of the scene at the end of the credits where you find out exactly what the prisoners were building in yeah. Arcana five, but yeah, Which you know, it's freaking cool. Yeah. It, I mean, you knew that was going to happen. It was, it was interesting to see. I, I wasn't like, Ooh, cause you know, I don't think it took a genius to figure out, you know, they were, <laughs> they were making something that was going into the, de into the, into yeah. the Death Star. Yeah. Yeah. That was neat. Yeah. It, it was, um, you know, it's like the beginning of the beginning, right. Which is the cool, coolest thing, right. You have this whole season of, of story and all of these characters and you know that that last confront well like not confrontation but scene with Luthen and Cassian and it's just you know it's a it's a it's the end of the 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 prologue if you will and it's the beginning of the beginning of what's to come which is a very cool place to be um going into season 2 yeah yeah and the fucking music is awesome in this the the main theme and the way it comes in with the credits or the, you know, the main, the main, uh, I don't know, logo or whatever at the beginning of each, I, I thought the music was fantastic uh, for this. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, everything about this is so well done. And again, I'm going to point to the fact that Tony Gilroy apparently doesn't know anything about Star Wars. And, right. and, and, and I, I heard it somewhere. I forget where exactly it was, but someone was explaining that Tony would, you know, turn to, <laughs> to yeah, he'd, he'd have somebody nearby, like, you know, what's a Trandoshan or whatever, <laughs> you right, know, because right. he did, he, he wasn't steeped in all of those, that lore. So it's interesting when, you know, when we talked about um, the Mandalorian and Dave Filoni, right. And all of his work on the clone wars and everything else, he obviously is super steeped in star Wars lore and is right. able to make very 
captivating stories. And then you've got Tony Gilroy, who knows nothing about Star Wars and is right. also able to do that. It's, I, I just, I, you know, I find that to be fascinating. Yes, it might be a, a, a winning combination to, that continues. Yeah. Sadly, it looks like the second season is going to be filming until August of this year. And, and then the, there's a suggestion of a whole year of post-production oh, after that. That's terrible. That is terrible. I mean, I'm going to trust that they're going to provide us a quality product, so it'll be okay. That's a long time to wait if we have to wait until the fall of 24. Well, we have other things coming. The third season of Mandalorian is coming up, which the trailer looks really, really exciting for that. We have the Ahsoka project. I don't know if that's a movie or a show or a miniseries. I that was going to be a cartoon. Is that going to be a no? I think there's an animated a, series. Is no, that I think be live. I think there's a live yeah. action. Cool. And uh, what they teased an Obi Wan Kenobi season two. Ah, well, so that would be fun. We have that to look forward to, and I don't know if they're doing any more um, Book of Boba Fett. So uh, um, I they've, wonder. They've got a lot of stuff to uh, to keep us entertained between now. I wonder and how many times Obi Wan Kenobi will not kill. Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, we said we weren't going to talk about that, but I mean, that's <laughs> it's it's a fair question, right? Like, how many how many times can we see that? I don't know. I think what's fascinating about all of this, right? As you know, bringing up the Mandalorian, is that you know the the conversations that that are going on about Grogu, right? And you know how you know in Episode One there was this prophecy of the you know the one that will bring balance to the Force. And, you know, it was, you know, perceived as Anakin. And even in the, you know, uh, the second trilogy or the, the original trilogy, you know, that's sort of the, the story, right? Darth Vader tosses over the Emperor and brings balance back to the Force. But there's a lot of discussion that Grogu is actually the embodiment of the prophecy, uh, the one who will bring balance to the Force lately on the... At least on the YouTube videos that I watch. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So we'll see, especially since he's uh, cast down the mantle of Jedi and taken up the role of Mandalorian. We will see. That'll be interesting. But again, I cannot say enough good things about Andor. I find it to be exceptionally captivating. I was excited for it. When it first started, I was a little confused, but by the time it was done, and to this day, I am perhaps even more impressed with Andor than I am with Rogue One. Yeah, I think that it's a, a wonderful compliment. I don't know if I'm more impressed, but I definitely, I guess I, I, I am more impressed because I'm about to say this. It's the best thing that Disney's done since they got a hold of Star Wars. Clearly. Yeah. And, and and that's not always easy to do with a prequel, right? Like when right. you know where the stopping point is, and I guess we'll see, you know, how they bridge that last gap on season two. Um, but I mean, think about the prequel trilogy, right? You We knew where you had to get and it, it was kind of close, but eh. <laughs> a little rough, a little rough, a little rough. Um, but so I, I think, I think they did an exceptional job with this, and I'm really, really excited we got to talk about it tonight, Paul. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was good. I'm going to go uh, start watching it again right now. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So, um, so yeah, we'll see, uh, you know, when we do our next Star Wars palaver. My guess is that will be Mandalorian Season 3. All right. And uh, in the meantime, everyone can, you know, listen to what we normally do and, uh, you know, enjoy all of that music stuff as well. Rock and roll. All right. Thanks, man. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.